Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. peeps, welcome back. So far in our Washington-themed month, we've talked about the early life of our first president and the life of his wife, Martha. This week, I wanted to chat about someone who was very much in the orbit of the Washington family, but who gets very little recognition on her own. As I covered in my episode on Martha, the Washingtons were a slave-owning family. And while a, quote, better master than most— The bottom line is they freely partook in the institution of slavery, and when given a chance to make some changes, they failed to do so. However, there is one woman who managed to escape her bonds and enjoy a life of freedom outside of the grasp of the Washington family. Her name, Ona Marie Judge, and she is the topic of our episode today. So grab your cup of coffee, peeps. Let's do this. Ona Judge, sometimes known as Oni, was born in either summer of 1773 or 1774 to her slave mother Betty, a, quote, dower slave, or a slave Martha inherited through the death of her husband Daniel. Betty was known as a seamstress and masterful spinner who had been with Martha since her marriage to her first husband. Her father is believed to be Andrew Judge, a white indentured servant who worked at the Mount Vernon Plantation for about 12 years, from 1772 to 1784. He served as a tailor during his indenture, crafting many of Washington's suits. Not much is known about Ona's childhood, since as a slave and a woman, there would be no need to record her daily activities, and she would not be taught to read or write. Once Washington was elected president, his wife had to ready their household, and by extension, their enslaved staff, for the journey up north. In New York, Ona got a chance to see a small but visible free black population. The need for and support of slavery in the northern states had already begun waning by the time Washington took his oath of office, but New York had not yet been motivated to outlaw the institution outright. Instead, a community of enslaved and free blacks walked together, more than likely confusing Judge, who was only a teenager at the time. The Washingtons were aware of the growing anti-slavery sentiment in the northern part of the country and therefore were careful in who they chose to make the journey with them. Judge being selected is a testament to the amount of trust the Washingtons had in her. At Mount Vernon, Ona worked primarily as a seamstress, like her mother, and therefore escaped the more back-breaking labor prominent on a southern plantation. Once she was in New York, however, Her duties were upgraded, and she became Martha Washington's top servant, sometimes referred to as a body servant. This required Ona to become a Jill of all trades, learning how to care for Martha's every need, drawing her baths, brushing her hair, and helping her select her outfits. Ona would also assist another female slave, Moll, to care for the Washington grandchildren. But not soon after their residence in New York was settled, Political scheming necessitated the Washington family move to Philadelphia, where the cosmopolitan city would serve as the nation's capital for 10 years 
until a final place could be chosen. And Philadelphia was a major change for all involved. While New York still held the notion that owning people was a sign of wealth and therefore prestige, Philadelphia was quickly moving in the opposite direction. With active Quaker societies and a growing abolitionist movement, Philadelphia had a much larger free black population than New York. With this came black mutual aid societies, black-owned businesses, and churches. To see so many people who looked like Ona living a free life definitely made an impression upon her. As the Washingtons settled into the presidential mansion, they knew there would be less white servant labor available and therefore made arrangements to bring up more slaves from Mount Vernon. It is estimated that between the Washingtons, their grandchildren, secretaries, and enslaved individuals, nearly 30 people lived on site at the new presidential mansion. These close quarters made it easy to spread information about the new town Ona now would call home, including their predilection for freedom. Shortly after moving to Philadelphia, Washington was informed about one small hiccup for his, quote, property. Pennsylvania law mandated that any slave living within the state's borders for a period longer than six months would automatically be free. A letter from his secretary, Tobias Lear, on April 5, 1791, explained to Washington the risk he was taking by having his slaves working in the presidential mansion. Seeking a legal loophole, Washington tried to argue his residency in Pennsylvania was, quote, incidental as an officer of government, end quote, and that since his true residency was Virginia, he and his household should only be bound by the rules of that state where no such law existed. Nice try, George. In an abundance of caution, Washington made plans to rotate his slaves every six months, thereby resetting the clock for his bondsmen and women. As Ona was a teenager at the time, Washington initially believed she would be exempt from the law and made no immediate plans to move her. However, he was quickly corrected and Ona, just like her housemates, were all scurried across state lines in order to evade the law. Ona would spend five and a half years living in the city of brotherly love, rotating out every six months or so on various errands for the first family. There is evidence the Washingtons trusted Ona extensively, allowing her to take outings on her own, well, with a male chaperone, but without the watchful eye of either George or Martha, to attend festivities such as the theater. So what prompted Ona's decision to risk her life and flee from the presidential family? I mean, aside from the obvious. In the spring of 1796, word came that Eliza Custis, Martha's granddaughter, would be married and that Martha planned on bequeathing Ona as a wedding present to help Eliza settle into married life. Eliza was known as tempestuous, which Ona would have surely experienced firsthand. Adding to the anxiety was the fact that Eliza's new husband, Thomas Law, had mixed children from a woman from his time in India. This signified that he had no issues sleeping with non-white women. While there is nothing in the historical record suggesting Washington ever assaulted his bondswomen, Ona knew that sexual relationships with, quote, masters was always a risk. Given the fact that she was considered a house slave, Ona would be in direct reach of her new proposed owner and surely was worried about what that might mean for her future. Lastly, Washington's term was coming to an end, and knowing she would not be returning to her family at Mount Vernon, Ona knew it was now or never. 
On the evening of May 21, 1796, as the Washingtons ate their dinner and entertained guests, Ona made her escape. Boarding a ship commanded by Captain John Bowles, Ona suffered for five days on rough seas on her journey to freedom. By May 23rd, news of Ona's fleeing made the papers, where an article described her escape, quote, absconded from the household of the President of the United States on Saturday afternoon, Oni Judge, a light mulatto girl, much freckled with very black eyes and bushy black hair. She is of middle stature, but slender and delicately made, about 20 years of age, end quote. A $10 reward was offered for her recapture, the going rate for runaways. Martha is said to have been devastated at what was seen as Ona's betrayal. She just couldn't understand how someone who was treated more like family than a slave, in her mind, would want to leave the comfort of their protection and attempt a life of freedom. As I mentioned before, Martha was a devout supporter of the institution, so it's not entirely surprising that she had this view. Ona was able to find refuge in the small town of Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Details of her escape remain unknown, so we don't know who chose the city or how she met up with free black individuals who were sympathetic to her plight. But her new town was known as being a friendlier area since it was moving towards total abolition of slavery. The city would do away with the institution by 1805, though the state would lag behind and not outlaw it until 1857. In Portsmouth, Ona found a job as a domestic, a hard, back-breaking job that required long hours and hard labor, including scrubbing floors, carrying gallons of water for laundry, and preparing meals in piping hot kitchens. But as hard as it was, at least she was free, or so she thought. A few months after arriving in her new city, Ona would come face to face with her past, literally. Walking the town streets, Ona was spotted by Elizabeth Langdon, daughter of Senator John Langdon, who was friends with and had been guests of the first family. Upon returning from her walk, Elizabeth informed her father of her discovery, and, following the law, he shared the reported sighting. And Washington wasted no time. Using the power and influence of his office, the president engaged the Treasury Secretary, Oliver Wolcott Jr., to assist in the recapturing of his property. He asked Wolcock to seek assistance from the local customs officer in Portsmouth, Joseph Whipple. His plan, as he shared in a series of letters, was to have Whipple place Ona on a ship headed back to Virginia, bypassing New Hampshire law. The state had a personal liberty law on the books that required anyone accused of recapturing their property to go before a judge and provide evidence of ownership. Not wanting to rock the boat and hoping to avoid bad press, Washington wanted to avoid the need to show up in front of a judge and instructed Whipple to subvert state law as a favor to him. Nothing like abusing the power of the office, eh? Whipple, who had his own reservations about slavery, agreed to assist the president, but was determined to know why Ona had escaped. Knowing that no sane fugitive would willingly agree to meet a member of government, Whipple set up a bit of a ruse to get an audience with Judge. He let the word out that he was seeking someone with domestic work experience for hire. The ruse worked, and Ona agreed to meet Whipple for an interview. However, Whipple made a terrible secret agent, and Judge quickly figured out his intentions were not what they seemed. He eventually came clean and explained that he would advocate on her behalf for future freedom once the Washingtons had passed, 
if she would concede to going back peacefully. Ona agreed and confirmed she would meet Whipple to board the next ship back to Virginia. But apparently, Ona was a better liar than Whipple, since when the time came for her to board the ship, she was nowhere to be seen. Having failed in his mission, Whipple wrote to Wolcott, explaining his attempt and Ona's refusal to show. In a rather bold move, Whipple remained true to his word and advocated to Wolcott that should Washington agree to her eventual freedom, she may change her mind and come back. That, of course, did not go so well. But Washington was also in a hard place. He was focusing on ending his presidency and did not want the negative publicity that would surely come if Ona made a scene in abolitionist-leaning Portsmouth regarding her return to bondage. He decided to give up the matter, at least for the foreseeable future. Safe for the moment, Ona explored her freedom, including finding marriage with a black sailor by the name of Jack Staines. Meeting in late 1796, the couple spent the holidays together before marrying in January of 1797. Marriage meant a few things for Ona. One, she had more protection, at least while Jack was in port, and she could have a family, since marrying a free black man with a job meant he would be able to financially support any children they had. And she also had a new last name, taking on her husband's surname, Staines, for the remainder of her life. But marrying a sailor also came with a downside, namely that Jack would be out to sea for extended periods of time, leaving Ona vulnerable to attempts at her recapture. Despite the risks, Ona and Jack started a family, with Ona having her first child, named Eliza, born in 1798. In the middle of her wedded bliss, Ona was not prepared for Washington's second attempt to recapture his former property, and was terrified as she opened the door one day to find Washington's nephew, Burwell Bassett Jr., at her door. Sent on behalf of his uncle, Bassett, who was in the Virginia Senate at the time, made his way to New Hampshire to try one more time to coax the runaway to come back to Mount Vernon. The negotiation tactic this time was to promise no retaliation for Ona's crimes of running away. Bassett tried to sweeten the deal by promising she would be free as soon as she returned to Mount Vernon. One would ask, then, why in the heck did she need to return to Mount Vernon if she was going to be free anyway? Staines had a smart head on her shoulders and saw through this pathetic negotiating tactic and responded firmly, quote, I am free now and choose to remain so, end quote. Can we get a mic drop, please? Yes, girl. Bassett, who was likely shocked at how Frank Ona responded, decided to take his leave and head back to his lodging to regroup and come up with a new plan of attack. Staying with New Hampshire Senator John Langdon, Bassett expressed his commitment to recapturing his uncle's property, by force if necessary. Langdon, who had been a tacit participant in the first attempt to send Ona back to Virginia, was not on board with this plan and secretly transmitted a warning to Staines, Leave before midnight to avoid recapture. Ona wasted no time. Hiring a stable boy, she grabbed her infant daughter and made yet another escape in the dark of night. Traveling to Greenland, some eight miles away from Portsmouth, when Bassett returned to Stane's home to force her back to Virginia, he found an empty house. Angered and surprised that a slave woman had managed to outwit him, Bassett returned to Virginia in October of 1799 to let his uncle know he, too, failed in his mission. Washington was committed to hatching yet another plan to attempt a recapture, 
However, he passed away in December, and it looks like any efforts at reclaiming Ona ceased with his death. While always on the lookout and never legally free, Ona would continue to live her life as a free woman and had three children, adding daughter Nancy and a son named William. Her life of freedom was not easy. Ona struggled financially throughout her life and lost her husband in 1803. To ease the burden, Ona moved in with a friendly family, the Jacks, in Greenland. Money was short, and eventually Ona placed her daughters into indentured servitude in August of 1816. In a weird twist of irony, Ona and her master, Martha, shared a few similar experiences, despite their very different circumstances. Both women outlived their husbands, and both, unfortunately, outlived all of their children. So, how do we know the story of Ona Marie Judge Staines? Luckily, late in her life, she was the subject of a couple of interviews by abolitionist papers. The first, published in May of 1845 in the Granite Freeman, and again on January 1, 1847, Ona detailed her escape and threw a little shade toward the Washingtons, claiming she never saw George or Martha pray. Ona passed away on February 25, 1848, as a free woman. And though her life of freedom was not easy, when asked if she regretted her decisions, Ona replied, quote, No, I am free and have, I trust, been made a child of God by the means. End quote. If you've been enjoying Civics and Coffee, please consider rating and writing a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps spread the word about the pod and makes me oh so happy to hear your thoughts. You can catch Civics and Coffee on the Instagram at Civics and Coffee, the Twitter at CivicsPod, or the website at www.civicsandcoffee.com. As always, you can support the show through Buy Me a Coffee, the link to which is found in the episode description. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together.